0: that we have a puro air running in our bedroom. So check it out at getpuroair.com. That's G E T P U R O A I R.com. One more time, getpuroair.com. If you're planning to cut back on alcohol this dry January, recess zero proof craft mocktails are the perfect alcohol replacement. Recess has meticulously crafted familiar favorites such as lime margarita and grapefruit paloma, allowing you to savor the flavors and experience of these cocktails without the alcohol content. Throughout January, my listeners can take advantage of a special offer and get 15% off the Recess Mocktail Sampler Pack at takearecess.com minimalist. Get 15% off Recess Mocktails now at takearecess.com slash minimalist so you can enjoy your favorite cocktails without the consequences. Hello and welcome to the Minimalist Moms podcast. I'm Diane. I'm a mother of three living in Columbus, Ohio. I'm trying to make room in my life for what matters by getting rid of the clutter and living life with purpose. I hope you'll join me on the journey to think more and do with less. Education is not solely about acquiring information and skills across subject areas, but also about understanding how and why we believe what we do. At a time where our online capabilities allow us infinite information and opinions, you can understand how parents and teachers worry about how students will interpret what they read and see. But how do we encourage them to examine different perspectives? How do we teach them the skills they need to become discerning adults? Joining me today is author Julie Bogart, who draws from more than 20 years of homeschooling experience in creating curricula. In this conversation, Julie offers insight and practical tips to help children at every stage of development to grow in their ability to explore the world around them. This is always a time where I encourage you to leave a rating and review if you haven't done so yet, but I feel like maybe that's better if I remind you at the very end of the podcast. So I'll remind you again at the end of the podcast and just get into my minimalist moment this week. So I have an idea of what I want to share with you from my minimalist moment this week, and it has more to do with intentional living and intentional conversations. I want to talk to you about listening, the art of listening, if you will. I recently was taught how to be a good listener. And there are four steps in this process. So, oftentimes, people start at step four. They want to fix the problem. And this oftentimes leads to the person that we're conversing with feeling like they hadn't been heard. Sometimes it's just good to share information without having it be fixed first and foremost. The third step, and I am going backwards here, is fact checking. And typically when we are listening to someone and we are trying to figure out where they're going to go wrong and or we point out where they were wrong for whatever reason, fill in the blank. Again, this isn't an effective listening strategy. So we wanna go back to number one. The first thing that we should do when we're being a listener is to seek first to understand. In this type of listening, we are asking questions and clarifying information that we may have misunderstood. And then step two, is to emotionally affirm. So this is just allowing the person to know, I hear you, I see you. And then you can go into step three, fact checking and four, fixing the problem. But if those first two things have been done, typically what, I, what I've seen in my relationship since I have started implementing a better listening habit is that they really do feel heard. We're actively engaged in the conversation. We're actively engaged with them. So this may not seem like the kind of content you'll find on a minimalist podcast, but this process has helped me become much more intentional in my relationships and in the skill of listening. Listening is a skill. And we may overlook that idea because in our day-to-day, it, it seems overthought to go through this four-step process when we're listening to someone but I will tell you, if you are in conflict with someone and or you have heavy conversations to have with someone, it really allows that person, again, to feel heard, seek first to understand, and then two, to emotionally affirm what they're saying. The person could be wrong and you can get there in steps three and four, but affirmation and being there with that person in that dialogue is first and foremost, the most important thing. So I do want to say I am not a psychologist, I am not a therapist, but this information has been incredibly beneficial to me, and I felt like it was worthwhile to share with you. So that is my minimalist moment of the week, and I'm really excited to bring you this conversation with Julie Bogart. As I tell her at the very beginning of the podcast, I've been following her for about a year now since we've been homeschooling. But this episode is not just for homeschooling families, this is all about teaching our children how to become critical thinkers. This is for any parent, any teacher, anyone directing children, teenagers, or the next generation. So I hope you find this information helpful as you steer your own children or your own students. So let's get into this conversation with Julie Bogart. Julie, thanks so much for joining me today on the Minimalist Moms Podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm
1: glad to be here.
0: Absolutely. So I first heard of you last year when I decided to start homeschooling and you were one of the top names that came up. And so I've been following along with some of the wisdom that you share for about a year now, and I really wanted you to come on the podcast. And I would say that you don't speak to just homeschoolers. Yes, you that's your main focus, but I think that your recent book, Raising Critical Thinkers, is really applicable to any mom, any dad. So I can't wait to hear what you have to say about that. But before we get there, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, and then we'll get started.
1: Oh, that's great. So my name is Julie Bogart. Uh, I own a company that's called Brave Writer. It teaches writing and language arts to homeschooling families, but also parents with kids in traditional schools as well. And after the pandemic in particular, we've had such an influx of those kinds of parents into our organization. We've got online classes and materials and coaching community for all of you who are interested in that. So bravewriter.com. I'm also a writer by trade and profession, even before Brave Writer. I worked as a ghostwriter and a freelance magazine editor and um, so many uh, opportunities to explore what it felt like to be a writer myself. When I got to the point where it was time to teach my own children how to write, I just didn't love the materials out there. They seem to miss the core and essential ingredient of writing, which is accessing your own thoughts and your own voice. So I really wanted to prioritize those things and taught my children that way. And then the next thing you know, I got roped into teaching a class to homeschoolers and it sort of grew from there. Absolutely. And how many kids do you have? I have five kids. They're adults now. The youngest is 25 and the oldest is 30. Oh, goodness, 35. (laughs) The youngest is about to turn 26. Um, I have three married, one engaged, and one who is uh, working in the UN as a peacekeeping officer in Central African Republic. They're all gainfully employed. I feel like I need to say that. So homeschooling parents know it's possible. Uh, And I loved my homeschooling experience. I treasure it. Do you look
0: back? I mean, obviously we all, I don't want to say regrets, but we all have things that we would have done differently. You are someone to go to now because you did this with five kids and you learned from your
1: mistakes and you can see what can really benefit kids at this point. I mean, it's unavoidable, right? All of us are going to experiment when we're raising children. Uh, I have two kids who now have my grandchildren and I'm watching them go through the same sort of agonizing decisions that I had to make. How much do you hold them? Do you Make them sleep alone or sleep with you. What is the right balance? And no matter how much insight I share from my own experience, they still have to experiment and work out for themselves what's right for their family, their personalities, and their particular children. So one of the um, concepts I try to offer when we talk about parenting and education is that it is supposed to be an experiment, that you do not have to get it right on the first pass. That your goal is to actually learn each other. Your children are learning you, you're learning your children, and together you're creating something that never existed before in a time and place that never existed before. So whatever worked with your parents and you is not going to necessarily make sense in today's parenting environment. Because the whole world has changed. And of course, I'm from the pre-internet era as a child. So for me, the drama was significant. And even for parents your age, social media is new, the role of the internet and YouTube in raising children. So what we want to recognize is that we're all going to do it imperfectly. But if we can learn and adapt and grow, uh, it'll be good enough.
0: Absolutely. One thing that has remained the same, and it's what we're going to be talking about today is critical thought and how to be a critical thinker. And it's one of the most significant things I would say that we need to instill in our children to think for themselves, to take in a variety of opinions of a variety of voices, figure out what they know is true, what they don't know is true and and work it all out. So I want to have you define what you
1: would say a critical thinker is. So we have a framework moving forward. Yeah. So a lot of times when people say critical thinking, they are imagining being critical of someone else's ideas, right? They're thinking, I'm a good critical thinker. I can deconstruct that guy I disagree with, you know, in two minutes flat. But I sort of stand that on its head. Critical thinking is actually the capacity to be self aware about your own bias, about what triggers you about places that perhaps you haven't examined how deeply your beliefs are centered on community or identity or emotion or limited experience. So critical thinking for me starts with self-awareness. It's the capacity to notice that bias when it kicks into gear. It's the capacity to hold space for opinions and beliefs that you don't hold. And imagining the logical coherence of that understanding for the person who holds it. So critical thinking for me is starts with self and it expands to include other people but it's not about gotcha or winning the argument or being the best person on the debate team that's not critical thinking.
0: This can be a tricky thing to navigate because people's identities that are so tied to to activism it might be it might stem from our religion it might be our religion so it's such a hard thing to navigate sometimes but yet I think if we all set our pride aside and we all are open to one another, that we can have these more tricky conversations and think more critically. But when that viewpoint does become our identity, how do we avoid that happening?
1: Yeah, right. So it's unavoidable that you have a viewpoint. So that's the place to begin. The goal here is not neutrality. We're not trying to suddenly have no opinions. Everybody's got them. It's being self-aware about how important those opinions are to us and on what basis we hold them. So sometimes we are holding an opinion that we've never actually thought about. I call that having an uncritically held belief. So you might just assume, for instance, that the world is a globe. We all assume that. I've done no research I believe what I read, I I believe the photographs I've seen, I could not verify that to you with any kind of factual data. I trust the authorities who've told me that these are authorities. My group trusts their authorities. I've come to believe. I haven't flown in a rocket ship to verify, yep, it's a ball. When I'm standing on the earth, it looks flat. When I'm in an airplane, I only see a very limited amount of curvature. So this is a belief I hold uncritically. Do I hold it strongly? I do. I'm not a flat earther. I don't think there's research to verify that. I trust that the array of research that I've been exposed to is accurate. So that's an example of at least admitting the limits to how well I can verify or vet my own belief, but I hold it very strongly. And if I met someone who was a flat earther, I would not argue with them. I would be fascinated that in the face of this mountain of evidence that most of us have accepted, they have carved out a belief system rooted in what? Where does their research come from? What is the community that makes them feel safer calling the earth flat than round? On what basis do they hold those views? And I wouldn't be there necessarily to even persuade them or call them an idiot, even though those thoughts probably pass through my mind like a normal human. But I would be curious about the foundation that got them to this point of choosing very countercultural belief. We saw this happen all the time during COVID. People who initially, I remember in the homeschooling space, were like a cottage industry of mask production suddenly stopped two months in and never returned and and suddenly were against masking. I thought that was fascinating. I was like, okay, so what was the initial belief structure? What changed the belief structure and why? Was it their own research or was it that the credentialed authorities that they thought they could trust had suddenly become untrustworthy in their communities? It's getting to the place where you can admit that sometimes you're just dealing with this cable package of beliefs. That you've assumed are true because your group vetted these people and they disagree with those people. Critical thinking is just owning all of that. Doesn't mean you let go of it. It's just where you start. Honestly, through 2020
0: till now, I feel like I was someone that really wanted to force my opinions on people, and I would push that flat earther to be like, "No, you're wrong. Like this cannot possibly be true." Now I. I don't want to say I don't care, but I don't feel like I care that much. For things like that, I'm like, why are we starting these arguments with people? There are far more important things that we could be doing that are, I guess, unifying and or just relevant. Does it really matter if the earth is flat or round? Not really. That doesn't really affect me in my day-to-day. Maybe it does, and that's why we're breathing, and maybe it all works together. <laughs> <But> <laughs> I think that I came to the conclusion that, like so many of these things that we're arguing over or that we feel like we have to be assertive about are just arrogance or us wanting to be right or us, I don't know, maybe we just like to be argumentative. And so, yes, there is a critical analysis that we can do, as you just said, when we're viewing these people, maybe view them through a certain lens, but also like, I don't know, it doesn't really, it doesn't really matter. So I don't need to necessarily engage them. I can learn about why they're making this stance, but I don't necessarily need to like go further than that.
1: Yeah. I mean, it really depends on the issue, right? So when we're talking about things like who goes to heaven, that's super important to people of religious background. And a person who doesn't believe in that might consider it unimportant because they don't think heaven and hell are at risk. So a lot of what the weight is, when a person takes a countercultural stand, and I'll give an example of homeschool, you're defensive automatically because you're in a small marginalized group. And you are choosing to go against the grain of the current and where most of the research lives and most of the finances and most of the government support. So whenever you step out of the mainstream, you get more defensive automatically because you're trying to get attention on what we feel like the rest of the world has overlooked. But what is dangerous in those moments is assuming that when you are in the counterculture, that you have all the information. So, for instance, I've done five home births and I homeschooled my kids. Those are two very countercultural behaviors. I felt like it was on me then to do even more reassurance and more reading and more research to give myself a sense of confidence in taking those risks. But I also found myself having to admit that the maternal death rate actually dropped substantially when births moved to hospitals that public education has been the most transforming force in the history of humankind for technology, innovation, and globalization. So sure, homeschooling can critique public school. It might have thousands of good things about it that I appreciate, but to pretend like public school is only a failure is actually an overstatement. Same thing about hospitals. So part of what I like Adults to do and then to teach our children is to be able to imagine Mm -hmm. what is the critique? Where did it come from? What did this first thing birth that was valuable? Like when we're looking on the hierarchy of values, there's more going on than it being true and false, I guess is what I'm saying. There's more going on than whether or not a flat earther is right. That person is attached to a notion of authority and conspiracy theories that are meaningful to them for some reason. It's pointing to something bigger and different. And that's what we always have to notice. There is a source, there's a foundation, there's a belief structure. You know, for instance, if you're a religious person, to challenge the doctrines of your church, let's say that has a statement of faith, puts your membership at risk. Mm -hmm. Like, are you allowed to voice that you have a different perspective? Will you still get six weeks of meals when your baby is born? Mm -hmm. If you don't agree with their theology. So it makes us defensive and we start doubling down and we, we have an inability to imagine alternatives because they feel like a personal threat to our security, our relationships and our sense of self. Absolutely. Hey, parents of young babies. Is there a child
0: with food allergies in your family? Does your child have a friend or a classmate with food allergies? Or do you know of someone close to you that has food allergies? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, then you know how scary, limiting, and anxiety-inducing it can be to have to carry an EpiPen with you at all times or constantly just be on high alert when dining out, reading food labels, sending your kids to school, all of the things. Imagine a world without food allergies where all foods are considered safe to eat for anyone where there aren't nut-free schools or separate allergy-free tables at lunch. That's what we call food freedom. Evidence-based research, USDA guidelines, pediatricians, and allergists all agree. Feeding small amounts of common food allergens, like peanut, eggs, and milk, daily for six months or more, starting at four months, is important for all babies to give them the best chance at a future of food freedom. That's why I'm happy to tell you about Ready, Set, Food. Ready Set Food was developed by an allergist and mom of two to make it easy, safe, and convenient to regularly feed babies low doses of the most common food allergens, starting right from the bottle. Ready Set Food is a gentle, guided system of products that takes the mess and stress out of introducing allergens. Head over to readysetfood.com/minimalist and use code minimalist for 30% off your first order of Ready Set Food, and get your child started on the path to food freedom today. Just do a quick search for Tecovas on social media and you'll see how adorably styled these boots can be. Visit tacovas.com, that's T E C O V A S dot com, and point your toes west. For a lot of my listeners, I feel like they're on a journey to simplify their lives, but they don't want to sacrifice style, which I completely understand, and that's why I was excited to partner with Home Threads. Home Threads is the perfect blend of minimalism and comfort for your home. You say, read, experience, encounters. Take me through
1: that process that you write about. Whenever we're learning information, we have three sort of systems that assimilate that new data, that new information. The first and primary way that we all expect education to occur is through books. And if you've been in homeschooling circles, books are like the holy grail. I mean, everybody says, all you need is a great library to become a well-educated person. And there's some truth to that. Reading is powerful. It gives us data. It gives us a whole bunch of information in a consolidated way. It aggregates research. It allows us to hear the thoughts and ideas of people who lived centuries before. Reading is incredibly powerful, but it is also incredibly safe. We decide whether or not we agree with what we're reading almost instantaneously. If I'm scrolling through Facebook and some friend from high school 30 years ago posts something and it's by a person I don't agree with, I will automatically have a negative reaction and read the entire article skeptically. I won't be open to the argument. I've already decided before I started reading the person's an idiot. Why would this person get my time of day, right? Smugness will emerge. So just because I read it doesn't mean I've become better educated. In fact, a lot of times people will read things. Good example is they'll read about a civil war conflict in some country they've never been to, and they'll take an opinion based on what they've read without having ever lived there, without ever having met a single person who lives there. And they will be using the amount of information they got, plus their current experience, which is invisible to them, to judge and evaluate what should happen in a place they've never been. Reading gives you a kind of confidence that you know a lot of information and therefore can render an opinion. But too often, that information is limited. It's safe and it's already sort of screened through our bias. So imagine reading about the violin. You could read every possible book there is about how it's made, what the sound sounds like, how to play it, who the famous violinists are. But would you say if you've only ever read books about violin that you could render an opinion on violin music? You you couldn't. If you'd never heard a violin played, your education is incomplete, right? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Interesting. So,
1: yeah. So the second level then of study is experience. Mm-hmm. So once you've read about violin, if you go to a symphony, you suddenly are like, whoa, Okay. So that's what it's like. That's what it can sound like. Yeah. And then maybe your friend says, well, let's go to a bluegrass bar. And you're like, oh my gosh, sounds completely different than what I heard in the symphony. This is two very different violin experiences. Are there more that I don't know about? So that's experience. Experience is actually having a sensory relationship, right? So in our example so far, reading would be like, I'm reading about France experiences. I'm going to go be a tourist in France, or I'm going to watch documentaries about France. You're getting more information through a sensory experience Encounter. The third way to get information mm-hmm. is when you upset the power dynamic. You are no longer in control. You know, when you're a tourist, you're in control. You stay in hotels, you go to the sites that are built for tourism, you eat food that's recommended in a restaurant list that you found online. Um, And when you're reading, of course, it's fully under your control. Encounter, learning to play the violin, moving to France. Suddenly, you are very aware. I don't know how to play this instrument. And to try and play it, I sound nothing like a symphony. I sound nothing like a fiddler suddenly this power differential has shifted and you're about to learn things about violin, no book or experience could teach you. Moving to France, learning the language, integrating into the school system, raising children there, shopping in the supermarket, making French food, that is an encounter. You're totally over your skis. You don't have enough information from a book or from tourism to be a success. So whenever we're learning, humility is at the core of the journey, because if all you've ever done is read, you don't have enough information to give a true opinion. You can offer a perspective. Well, based on what I've read, this is how I'm leaning. This is what I think. This is what I believe. But that's not the same as I am now an astrophysicist and I can tell you definitively the earth is round because I've actually done the encounter work. I've done what it takes to know that's true. So you're
0: explaining how we can do this as adults and why it's important to us. But I want to know what that looks like in teaching our children to be that way. What are some practical steps that we could take after leaving this podcast? And what did that look? Maybe what did that look like for you? Do you feel like this is how you raised your kids to be?
1: Yeah, I really do, actually. I feel like very early on in my homeschool career, I was introduced to the value of kinesthetic learning using your full body. And so Read Experience Encounter really grew out of that understanding. What was thrilling is when I started doing the research for the book, I had already built that construct. And as it turns out, there's research in the world of education that really validates those concepts. But yeah, so a good example would be this. Let's say you're getting ready to teach your child fractions or decimals or percents. The first place I would always try to start is, where is that already showing up in my child's life? How can we actually approach fractions or decimals or percents in a way that is relevant to them? Online gaming, baking, sewing, whatever it is, going from just this reading about it in a workbook to actually experiencing it and then the encounter of actually designing your own problems and learning how to solve them. That's kind of the way that I thought about education. So when we're thinking about critical thinking, we want our kids to grow up with this idea that they always need a little more information. They need to think about the source of that information, what the worldview is of that source, um, ask who's telling the story, find out who isn't telling the story, who isn't being included in this narrative from their perspective, giving them opportunities to design experiences to go with what they're curious about. So if your children, like in my case, I had kids who got really interested in ancient Egypt. They loved all the mummification practices and I wanted them to learn how to write. So I was always mulling over in my head, what could we do? One day I opened the mailbox and there was an apple products catalog. This is back before the internet was big, called Mac Mall. And I came in and I said to my kids, what if we created a mail order catalog of embalming materials from ancient Egypt? So now they went from just hearing it in a story to putting it in their own language, using marketing language. They drew designs. They imitated this magazine. We had it printed and turned into its own little catalog. They each had their own copy. So when we're learning, I'm always thinking. There's the reading information level, there's the experience level. And then if it's possible to give them an encounter through a field trip or doing an activity directly themselves, that's the capstone that really builds critical thinking.
0: Yeah, I really like that. Starting with simple ideas as they move through their teenage years and they're starting to dive deeper into research and world events, current events, so that they can be informed adults as much as we can be before we have those experiences and those encounters, for sure. Interesting. Well, is there anything else that we missed that you wanted to share that was a main point of raising critical thinkers and why people would want to pick up a copy of this book?
1: Yeah, actually, one of the things I'd really like to address is social media and video gaming because it comes up so frequently. One of the reasons our kids are so mesmerized by online gaming and social media is that they are driving, think of it like driving a car. They are driving an adult machine, whether it's a computer, a game controller, or a telephone. Yeah, a telephone. Listen to me, cell phone. So, I mean, that just tells you how old I am. They are using a tool that was designed for adults. So when they're on it, they feel sophisticated. They feel challenged, they feel stimulated. A lot of times we're like, get off the phone or get off the computer. And what do we give them as the alternative? We give them a couch. We're like, go sit on a couch, <laughs> you know, like don't do video games, fill in the blank, what to do instead, I have nothing for you, go be bored.
2: Yeah. What I
1: like to say to parents is borrow from that model knowing that your kids are learning and they are the longitudinal research about online gaming is very promising. Kids are learning emotional regulation. They're learning strategy. They're learning problem solving. They're learning so many valuable, critical thinking skills while they're gaming. So what can we do that is similar to that? Now, one of the jokes I have with parents all the time. So I'm warning you a little (laughs) trigger warning about violence here. Um, I often say, if you want your kid to get off the computer, hand them a book of matches and tell them to start a bonfire. (laughs) Like they will get off the computer. They're looking for risk and adventure. So could they use another comparable tool? Could they learn to sew on a sewing machine? Could they learn to use your KitchenAid mixer? Could they learn to use a drill and a drill bit? Could they learn how to use a hacksaw? Give them something worthy to get off for. Because what they're getting out of of the computer is what they will get if they can engage their bodies, their minds, their imaginations with equally demanding and challenging tools. And critical thinking depends on these sort of steps and processes. It's not just a linear argument about social issues. It is the capacity to problem solve whenever you encounter an obstacle. That really is the foundation of it. So the more they have opportunities to do that in real life using real tools, the better they'll be at thinking. Outside of homeschooling, I
0: definitely wanted more of a Montessori progressive school approach to where they had more hands-on, just they were more hands-on in general. And I know that that is not accessible to everyone, but I mean, maybe if homeschooling isn't for you, if you're listening, that that might be another option if you want to dive a little bit deeper into some of the stuff you and I are talking about today.
1: Yeah. And even if you have kids in school, I mean, I remember this one friend of mine, she had sons and she was an expert quilter. So she taught her boys to make quilts and they would do it 30 minutes a day before school. So before the bus came, they each had their own sewing machine and they sewed their own quilts. Those boys were 11 and 12. And I share that with you because we get stuck in our gender stereotypes. We think we don't have time, but kids will make time for things that are exciting and stimulating. And the power of a sewing machine is like driving a car. You're stepping on a pedal. There's speed, there's skill. It's, it's really satisfying. We yeah. have to recapture some of that. Part of it is adults are boring. We've all fallen under the spell of screens. We have to reimagine our lives plant a garden, go hiking, build a treehouse, um, learn how to fish and skin the, the fish and then cook it on a camp stove. Like we need to reinvest in activity as well. I love that you say
0: that adults are boring. That is absolutely true. <laughs> that was absolutely true. We <laughs> like to get out in nature. That is where I feel like I thrive, but outside Quite of that, yeah, I'm very much just very redundant around the home. So that's a challenge to me myself. So, <laughs> well, where can listeners connect with you online or grab a copy of Raising Critical Thinkers?
1: So my book is available at its own website, RaisingCriticalThinkers.com. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about homeschooling or um, writing and language arts, go to BraveWriter.com. Uh, we'd love to help you there. And then you can follow me on Instagram. I'm at Julie Brave Writer, and I post original content there every day.
0: Great. Well, as we wrap things up here, I ask just two quick questions to all my guests. And the first one is, what has been a beneficial resource to you that you'd like to share with the listeners?
1: So my good friend, Amber O'Neill Johnston wrote this fabulous book called A Place to Belong, okay. celebrating diversity and kinship in the home and beyond. And I think it's a great follow-on to raising critical thinkers very practical, how to build the heritage and culture of your family with a lot of hands-on activities. So I would recommend this book as a great resource. I may have to reach out to her as well. Oh, you should. She's a phenomenal interview. Amber is fabulous. You will love her.
0: Great. Great. All right. Well, last question and then I'll let you go. What is something that you can't stop
1: talking about? So right now I'm really into yoga. I spent a month in Mexico. My daughter lives Uh there. She's married and just had a baby. And I did yoga every single day. And I, I didn't have the opportunity to do my workouts or go running, which is what I do here. And I discovered that yoga gave me a brain vacation. Like it was great for my body, but suddenly I was like, wow, for a whole hour, I'm not thinking thoughts. I'm just focused on a pose. I'm 60, so maybe this is partly why I love it so much, but it has really transformed how I see everything. I've slowed my work down. I've created more space in my days. I've just become, I can't stop talking about it. I've just become a calmer person and I feel healthier. So that's it.
0: Yeah. So you have brought that back and you're maintaining that now?
1: I am. I've been doing it mostly with online yoga, but there's a yoga studio locally that I'm planning to join. But yeah. I've just come home and I I do it each day in my office right behind me and I put it on my screen. And I don't know, it's just really been life changing. I love it.
0: I think it's really good to maintain flexibility too, as we get older and they say falls or we don't want to fall over 65. So nope. I think that, that helps you with your ability to balance and all the things. So I love that you can't stop talking about that, but Julie, thank you so much. This was a wonderful conversation and I appreciate you writing this book. It's so important for people to teach their kids these skills. So
1: thank you so much. Thank you, Diane. I loved being here.
0: What did you think of the episode? If you enjoyed this conversation, I want to encourage you to leave a rating and review if you haven't done so yet. Leaving a rating and review is the best way you can help this podcast continue to succeed and grow. Again, thank you to everyone who supports The Minimalist Moms by listening, leaving those rating and reviews, or following along on social media at Minimalist Moms Podcast. As always, I invite you to keep the conversation going at minimalistmomspodcast.com, and there you can find links to the Instagram account, my Facebook page, and where you can find me all around the web. Thank you for joining up on this journey. I wish you a lovely week as you think more and do with less.
2: At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world
1: a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation,